you join with me once more in prayer. Our Father in God, we trust that your word, which has now just been read, would be in our hearts and minds. As we consider your teaching here, we would be sensitive and, and aware uh, that we would listen carefully. And Lord, in all things, that these would not just be ideas to discuss, but Lord, they would be things that we grab on, grapple onto and, and try to live in accord with. We pray for your grace in all these things. Amen. So we come now to Luke 16. Uh, remember last week we worked very quickly through Luke 15. And this week we are going to try to tackle the first half of Luke 16, uh, stringing together a number of things that Jesus has spoken. And these parables uh, are difficult for us to understand. Uh, they're often difficult because there's, well, depending on how many commentaries you might have read or how many study Bibles you own or how many times you've read this for yourself, uh, there's a lot of opinions about what exactly it is that Jesus is teaching in his words here. There's a lot of different ways that people try to and, and can take these <coughs> verses. And so we are going to try uh, our best stab at interpreting these texts in light of all of what uh, Jesus has been teaching in the last several chapters of Luke's gospel. But before we get there, uh, I want to I ask you to consider with me a situation. Imagine you had two students who both signed on for the same class that they were going to take in college. They both show up on the first day of class. They're both given a syllabus. They're both told there's going to be a midterm exam, some quizzes along the way, and a final exam. And the midterm and the final will both be cumulative, covering everything you've learned in the previous weeks. And both students walk away with that information. One student decides he's going to sleep. He's not going to go to class. He's going to cram study for the quizzes. He's not going to study for the midterm, not going to study for the final. The other student is studious. He goes every day to class. He takes notes. He downloads the PowerPoints. He studies with other students. He applies himself. He learns all the material, studies for the midterm, studies for the final. Both show up on the day of the final exam. And both students show up as prepared as their work has made them. One will fail that final exam for their lack of study. And one who has used his time wisely will pass that final exam because of how he applied himself. And we can see in just this one picture how two people could live in either wisdom or in foolishness. Both had the same amount of information. But one applied that information and one did not. Now in, in showing you that illustration, notice I didn't put forth either students as pictures of virtue or as role models to live by in all of what they did. One of the students, the one let's say who studied and did really well in school, uh, that person could be terrible. They could also have uh, cheated on their girlfriend during that semester or they could have uh, never called home or been disrespectful to their parents or broken lots of relationships or uh, uh, possibly done all kinds of things which would not be worth emulating. But in this one lane, they're studying for the final exam, they did well. Their, their wisdom would be worth emulating. Similarly, the foolish student who did not study for the final exam, uh, they could be a wonderful son to their parents, they could be a wonderful uh, friend to those who they interact with, 
They could have volunteered at a local shelter. They could have done all kinds of things which would be worth emulating. But in this one lane, this one example, they would not be worth following after because of how they chose to apply themselves. Now, I think in that picture, if you can, if you can get that idea, you've resolved for yourself 90% of the tension that presents itself to us in this parable because it seems as though Jesus is signing off on a person as commendable in behavior who the text itself has told us is a rather dishonest and swindling individual. So what is it that Jesus commends to us? Does he commend this uh, manager in every single lane or does he commend this manager in one particular lane, namely his shrewdness? I, I propose to you that if you get that idea, you've resolved a lot of the problems that come up in this text. So with that in mind, let's turn ourselves now to Luke chapter 16 in verse 1. And we are going to be looking at this text, uh, well, verse by verse, but we're not going to have time to read all of it. We're going to just kind of have to gloss over the, the high points. And we will be asking some questions of the text and what Jesus is teaching here. So verse 1, notice the context. Jesus says to his disciples, this then naturally flows off of the parable that he has just taught in Luke 15. Remember the series of parables that he has taught. And at that time, those parables are addressing the contention of the Pharisees that Jesus is associating with tax collectors and sinners. They've accused him of being just like them, being unrighteous. And Jesus has taught the Pharisees about these two individuals. And you'll remember last week I mentioned there's two lost sons, one who is rather, uh, rather foolish, who does not spend time, money, or any resources well, and he is forgiven and received by the Father, and one who is actually very wise and studious, staying at home, working, laboring faithfully for his Father, but who is unrepentant, who is, who is unreceptive to the Father's grace. And now it's almost as though Jesus can hear his disciples whispering among themselves saying, oh, He's saying what we do in this life doesn't matter. He's saying we don't have to worry about our time or resources because look at the prodigal son. He was able to come back at the last minute having forsaken all resources, all time, all responsibilities, and yet he still received as a full-blown son. Now, if you're a disciple, you're hearing that, you're going, oh, I've been given a huge license to do whatever I want. And now Jesus turns, notice not to the Pharisees, now he's turning to his disciples, and he's going to encourage them, hey, just because you can be forgiven, don't sin. Don't do foolish things. This is what Paul teaches, right? He teaches about the free grace of God, and he says, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. We do not do that in response to God's grace and free reception. Here, Jesus very similarly does the same. He calls his disciples, and Christian, he calls you to live shrewdly in this life, given all that he has blessed you with. Firstly, you'll notice he calls the disciples to live shrewdly in light of eternity. Now we see this in the parable where Jesus is telling us about a manager and the manager has been recently fired and he concludes in verse three, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. He's basically saying I can't make it in this life apart from my current position. It's the only way I can have money or security for myself. Verse 4, I have decided what to do, right? He's, he's keeping in mind the fact he's going to be removed from his job. And he says, so that when I'm removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. So what does he do? He summons his master's debtors one by one. And he brings them into the house. And he says, first, how much do you owe my master? 
And this first man, verse 6, says, he owes, he owes him 100 measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. He's giving him a deal. Now, the steward has just been fired. Uh, we could argue that he doesn't have the authority to do this kind of thing. Uh, he's, he's behaving not in good faith towards his master. But nevertheless, he cuts this deal. He writes a, a check for 50. He, he deals with a debt that is owed. And his purpose in doing this is so that, you know, when he's out alone without shelter or home, he will be able to be received by this person who he just gave a huge, a huge break on. Verse 7, he says to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, uh, or sorry, verse 8, the master, or sorry, it is verse 7. He said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write for 80. So he goes to this other person. He gives him another deal similar to the first. And this is just two examples. But remember, the steward says he's going to go to all of his master's debtors and do this. So we can extrapolate. He, he's done this. Every single person who owes his master a debt, he goes to that person and cuts an unrighteous deal with that individual. He goes to them and he offers them a break, some, something that he's not necessarily authorized to do, but he does it anyway. And what's his master going to do? Is his master going to come back to that person who's just given him a debt payment and say, actually, no, 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 you owe me the full amount because everyone would be mad at him if he did that. So the steward has swindled his way into good favor with all of his master's debtors. So what happens when the master finds out about these things? Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager, not for his business dealings, not for his uh, faithfulness. He commends him for his shrewdness. And notice then Jesus speaking, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So we have now for ourselves a problem. It seems as though Jesus has just signed off on what the servant has done in all of his dishonest activity. And what are we to say uh, as a take-home point, right? You're reading this, uh, the Bible. You're, you're saying, how do I apply this text to my life? And you're saying, well, the Bible in here, Jesus has just said, I can swindle people in business. I can make for myself unrighteous wealth because after all, this, the servant is commended for his shrewdness. But that's not the point. The servant is commended for his shrewdness and then Jesus turns around to his disciples and says, you should be shrewd as well with regard to eternal things. The, the dishonest manager is not a model to follow for the disciples. He's commended in one lane and one lane only, namely that he has his own interest in mind and he acts in accordance with that. He thinks that the only hope he has for making it after he's fired is by cutting all these deals. So what does he do? He commits himself entirely to that task and uses everything within his power and every leverage that he has to accomplish that end. And Jesus turns and says to a Christian, Christian, you, in light of eternity, in light of all that you know about God and what he's revealed in his kingdom, you ought to behave in the same way in light of eternity. Not being dishonest, not being wicked in your dealings with people, but uh, you should behave in such a way where you can be seen as a shrewd person who lives in light of and in full selling out to the reality of eternity. So we can live in light of eternity in a number of ways. This parable in particular commends our living in light of eternity with shrewdness. And it says, do so first and foremost financially. So this steward here, uh, he, he leverages unrighteous finances, unrighteous wealth. Uh, but he does so for the purpose of making himself secure. Well, as Christians, what do we have 
What can we leverage our finances for to live shrewdly in this world? What do we know needs to be accomplished in light of eternity? We know the gospel is supposed to go forth. We know that God has told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we know that God has given us, in some cases, some finances, some cases, other, uh, other access to financial means. And now the question is, will we live with our finances shrewdly in light of what we know about God, the gospel, and eternity? Do we invest our wealth in a way that is reflective of what we believe to be true about the world? You can think about it this way. If you know the gospel is to go forward into all the earth, but you spend your finances, your, your savings, your wealth on yourself to bless yourself, and you don't really contribute anything to the kingdom or to the mission, well, Jesus says that, that would be a, a poor use of finances. That would be a foolish use of finances, given the fact that he has in all these ways shown us that the gospel is an important thing which we ought to put our resources behind. He doesn't tell us how to. He gives us to our wisdom, to Christian liberty, and says, you should live shrewdly in light of the fact that eternity is a reality. The servant, when he knows he's going to be fired, he acts to seek his own best interest. A Christian, when they know that eternity is to happen and the gospel is to go forward, should act in accord with that when they invest their finances. I know of individuals, not believers, who know where their savings goes. They know how much of their paycheck goes towards their retirement fund. They know how much of their paycheck is spent, how much of it is saved, how much of it is for certain kinds of spending. They, down to the very last cent, know where every part of their paycheck goes. That is a shrewd way to use your finances because you have been given your finances as a resource to employ for God's kingdom. And I also know believers who are saved, who have the Holy Spirit, who have no idea where their money goes. They receive a paycheck, but, but we cannot, they could not rightly say that they react shrewdly or intentionally with their finances. They simply have them and they leave, but they don't know where it is going. And as shrewd as the sons of the world are with their finances to invest in their own futures and in their own interests, so too the sons of light should be shrewd to invest their finances in the things they know are important and valuable. It's not just with regards to finances, though. Uh, the parable could be extracted to say, with, with all of our resources, we ought to live shrewdly. In this case, finances is commended as an example. But Jesus goes on to tell us in verse 10 that the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. He says then, if you then have not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? It's not just about stewarding finances. It's also about stewarding every richness and gift that God has given you for the glory of his kingdom. Let's say he's entrusted you with a particular gift of teaching for his glory or a particular gift of free time, which you can employ for the kingdom. Here's the question. Do you spend that on yourself? Do you squander that time? Or do you spend it for the glory of the kingdom and the advancement of the gospel? In light of eternity, how should you spend your resources? All of them. I just put time to you as one that I know some of you might have more of than others. But there are any number of resources that you can think of, gifts that you've been given, responsibilities you've been tasked with, that you should ask the question, how can I use this? How can I employ this so that I'm living faithfully in light of eternity? When God looks at my life and my time and how I spent my treasures and resources, 
Will he say, well done? Shrewd steward, will he commend us for our activity? Or will he say, you are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, but you were foolish with the resources that I gave you? What will he say with you? But it's not just in light of our finances, in light of our resources. The best way in the world to be shrewd is to be shrewd with your soul. In light of eternity, living shrewdly, first and foremost, isn't about finances. It isn't about your time and your gifts. Living shrewdly in light of eternity is first and foremost asking the question, do I have an eternity that I'm looking forward to? In light of all that God has revealed in the Gospel of Luke, in his word, to you and, my, to you and me in our hearts and lives, do you live in this life knowing that when it all comes to an end, you will be able to stand before God, justified, sanctified, and able to be free of condemnation for all the sins that you've committed. If you have not, and you cannot say that honestly, that is a foolish way to live in this world. The king is coming. He will call every single person to account for the wrong and the right that they have done. And we know that his standard is not more wrong or more rights than wrongs. His standard is perfect right and no wrong at all, for he is a holy God. How then will you stand before such a king? But what if that king gave you an opportunity to repent and be sanctified to him, and you looked at that opportunity and you squandered it and you said, I want no part of that. Would that not be living foolishly in light of eternity? Instead, Christ calls us to live shrewdly, Asking the question, if he has provided a means of escape, should we not settle with our accuser before the time comes? So with our soul, we are also called to live in light of eternity. All of it is commended. All of it is taught here by Jesus. And he implies to teach his disciples and his, his followers that they are to be a kind of people marked with shrewdness and care and exactness in how they deal with the world, not as fools, but as wise individuals, because God is a wise God, and he calls us also to live wisely. But consider now, I've, I've put, you, put a couple of examples before your eyes of shrewd living in light of, let's say, advancement in the world or advancement of the kingdom. But consider for a moment how you could take all of those things and squander them in self-advancement. Because scripture doesn't just tell us that we ought to get as far as we can in the world. That's not actually what scripture teaches. Scripture tells us we ought to steward every domain and responsibility that God has given us appropriately. Something that comes to mind for me is a song that I grew up listening to and that my dad uh, would constantly play for me as I was growing up through, through, the, through the years. It's called, the song is called Cats in the Cradle. And the song is about a father who invests his time, his resources, his energy, and his effort to secure his family's financial future. He seeks career advancement. He works hard at his work. He works hard uh, to invest financially for his family. He spends his time and effort in light of those investments. But when it comes to the third verse, you recognize that what the father has squandered in this living is his relationship with his son. His son is off to college. He comes visiting the father. The father says to him, hey, let's spend some time together. And the son, in, in patterned with the father, says, you know, I, I really don't want to spend time with you. I'm too busy doing these other things. 
I have other relationships I think more important because the father did not invest in the son and so the son concludes there's no point in investing in the father. And so even though we could say in many lanes the father was shrewd and wise with his time and his efforts, we would conclude ultimately given his various domains of responsibility, he squandered the resources and time that God gave him. So it is with you, Christian. It is not just about your career or what you do in your volunteering or what you do in your giving. Ultimately, God calls us to steward relationships with one another, with our family members, with our friends. And being busy is often antithetical to investing in people. Investing in people requires free time. It requires patience. It requires the ability to be able to turn off work and turn on emotional and relational connections. In some sense, from a productivity standpoint, people are really a waste of time. They take time, it takes a long time to get to know them. But as Christians, we are called to such shrewdness, living in light of relationships with people so that we can find an opportunity to present the gospel, so we can be there and be available when someone is suffering who's a brother and sister in Christ, so we can pray for people, so they know that when they're in the darkest season of their life and they call, they know we'll pick up because we've invested in them. That's the kind of shrewdness that God calls us to live in light of as well. We use every single resource and every single thing that God has given us shrewdly in light of eternity. And one thing eternity teaches us is that at the end of the day, all these material things that we invest in actually will go away. But relationships and people and souls actually exist into the next life. And so how do we live in light of that? But by investing in people and stewarding our time well with them. We're not, though, just called in this text to live shrewdly in light of eternity. We're also called to live shrewdly in light of all of our responsibilities. Now, what that means is partially regular faithfulness to what God has called us to. You might think of yourself and think, well, God hasn't entrusted me with the direction of a company or leadership yet within the church, or he has not yet given me 12 people who I'm to disciple every single week or he's not yet called me to a manager's role, or he's not yet sent me overseas as a foreign missionary, uh, what then am I to do with my downtime? Well, here he says in verse 10, you who are faithful in little will also be faithful in much. So what is it that you can be faithful over now in your life? Perhaps it is showing up on time to work faithfully so that you can have an opportunity to speak with a coworker when the time comes. Perhaps it is showing up daily to class and turning in your homework on time so you can graduate and have a degree that you can then turn around and invest for the glory of God in the workforce or in the foreign mission field. Perhaps regular faithfulness requires being there and being present, investing in people, not when the moment arises, but actually in a daily pattern so that when the moment arises, they know who they can count on. Faithfulness is not a, is not a one-time decision. Faithfulness is a lifestyle decision that you make regularly and consistently, daily, even moment by moment and hour by hour. <coughs> Perhaps faithfulness looks like knowing you can get away with something at work because your boss doesn't watch you closely and instead doing what you've been tasked with, even though you know other coworkers won't do the same. That is what faithfulness requires of you. Because if your boss isn't watching, at the end of the time, at the end of eternity, we know that God sees everything. And it is not for fear of punishment, because if you're a believer, there is no condemnation. 
but it is for fear of shaming your father for how you conducted yourself in this world, that you would live responsibly and shrewdly. The watchmakers in Geneva, under the preaching of John Calvin, resolved to make the greatest quality watches that the world had ever seen, because they knew that every watch would be examined by God for faithfulness. How faithful were they in the making of these watches? And they did so. Now that seems like a rather mundane thing to put gears in watches and make sure they turn right. But to this day, some of the best watches in the world are made in Geneva, Switzerland, because those watchmakers entrusted themselves to working for the glory of God, not just at church or in discipleship, but actually in every area of stewardship that they're responsible for. So whether you are working at a computer or whether you work as a computer programmer or whether you work in a hospital taking care of patients, just because no one's looking, that does not mean that should lower your quality of work. Just because you can get away with it doesn't mean that should lower your quality of work. God calls you to live shrewdly and live to his glory in every domain of life. And we don't just live with regular faithfulness. We also have to live with a singular allegiance. Notice in the text, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Conclusion, you cannot serve God and money. If you consider faithfulness to be uh, a goal you are aiming for, something you are striving towards. Faithfulness will look like this at the end of time. Well, how do you know what that faithfulness looks like in the here and now if you have two different directions that you're running in? Imagine a, a man sets out on a race and they go from the start line and they go, where are we running to? And they're trying to run at two different finish lines. They would, they would go nowhere. There's an old Indian proverb that says, uh, if you chase two rabbits, you catch no rabbits. But if you chase one rabbit, you will catch the one rabbit. The point is, if you know what your goal is, if you know what you're running after, you actually have a much better chance of actually completing that goal. Jesus here says you cannot serve two masters. There are two different directions. There are two different allegiances. They will lead to fruitless and squandered living. It is entirely possible because of God's grace for a Christian to be saved, to live in this world as a born-again believer, and to squander all of their time and effort in self-investment, self-interest, their own resources, their own time, and for at the end of the day, for them to be saved, and yet for them to have nothing to show for it in this life. It is not a commended way to live, it is a foolish way to live, but it is possible. But ask yourself, Christian, is that really how you want to live your life? Living your life, investing in things that you know at the end of time won't actually be worth anything at all? Or would you rather consider God's holiness, allegiance to him, and live in light of that? What would you rather do? To live shrewdly requires faithfulness, but it also requires knowing where you're headed, knowing who you're serving. Because if you don't know who you're serving, how can you know how to serve? So it requires that singular allegiance. But also, living shrewdly is not just a matter of knowing eternity and knowing what you're responsible for. Living shrewdly is also a matter of knowing God's law, God's word. The text here tells us that it is, uh, it is sometimes a matter of wisdom 
how we invest our time, how we participate in the world. But sometimes it's just a matter of obeying what God has said. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he now turns and says to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now the Pharisees are famous in, in the gospels for challenging Jesus and, and going against him. But what is it that Jesus is going to particularly put the sore spot on now when they challenge him? He says this, verse 16, the law and the prophets were around until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces their way into it or you could see is compelled or urged to come into the kingdom. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of God's law to become void. Here Jesus is speaking about how trustworthy and reliable is scripture. And he says, every single jot is reliable and trustworthy. Now, how, why would he have to say that? That's not just an abstract theological debate, because if you look at the very next verse, he's going to apply that inspired text onto the lives of the Pharisees to show them just how short they fall of God's standard. And he says, everyone who then divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband also commits adultery. Now, that seems like completely unrelated to what was just said. But if you know about one of the things that the Pharisees are known for doing in the Gospels is for diluting the practice of marriage all the way down to the point where at this, at this juncture, uh, a husband could divorce his wife for burning the food that she cooked for him. A husband could divorce his wife if she didn't look as young as she used to. A husband could divorce his wife for almost any reason that the Pharisees had come up with. So low did they view marriage. So when Jesus says that uh, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one, dot of one, one jot or tittle of God's law to pass away. And then he turns around and applies God's law to their life, to their teaching. He's not doing so from a vain theological abstraction. He's actually saying, uh, therefore, you need to obey God's law. You need to actually be obedient to the word of God. Not everything is a matter of discernment and living shrewdly. Some things are a matter of black and white obedience. So living shrewdly doesn't just mean knowing how to steward your time well. Living shrewdly can mean you do not commit adultery. You do not divorce someone for an unlawful reason. Living shrewdly uh, could simply mean knowing true things which are true regardless of the situation or circumstance. It is never right or justifiable or good for someone to cheat on their spouse. There is no wise situation in which one alternative is to be sifted over another. One is de facto shrewd living, one is de facto foolish living. There is no situation where you can justify the taking of an innocent life because God's law says you cannot do so. It doesn't matter the circumstance or the situation or a myriad of other considerations which might come into play. It is foolish and wrong to take innocent life. And it is always wise to preserve innocent life. Why? God's law says so. We live in obedience to it. As Jesus applies it here, it seems to be going with the topic of divorce, but keep in mind that's their particular error in light of God's law. There can be a host of errors, and particularly in a Western world which despises God's law and has almost universally rejected God's law, even in pockets of the church. We ought to 
say yes, Lord, to whatever it is that we read in scripture. Now, that does not mean we don't do careful study and ask the question, if it applies, how does it apply today? But it certainly doesn't mean that we can take a lower view of scripture than Jesus does. Because notice Jesus's view of scripture. He says, uh, it's all God's word. It would be easier for heaven and earth to cease to exist than for God's law to become null and void. And I want you to hold that intention with the fact that even today, in the most learned biblical scholarship communities, there are a host of unbelievers present who can think of 20 reasons why you shouldn't think that the scripture you have in front of you today is the very word of God, and therefore you shouldn't obey it. I would submit to you against their 20 proofs, which I will not go through time to list, uh, God's goodness, graciousness, and providence, which Jesus here subscribes to, because he doesn't have original autographs of what Jeremiah wrote. He doesn't have original autographs of what Moses wrote. He has copies of copies of copies that have been preserved throughout the Jewish centuries. And even post-Babylonian captivity, he still thinks scripture, the law of God, the law of Moses is God's word. Therefore, I obey it. Don't have a lower view of scripture than Christ does. If he says it's the word of God, we can trust him. And we can say it is the word of God. We don't have to speculate about whether or not Babylonian scribes mixed in their pagan teaching with scripture. We don't have to speculate on whether or not there's some manuscript out there that would contradict the original creation account. You can settle that and put it to bed by trusting Jesus' own interpretation of the text of the Old Testament. He tells us that God's providence is such that you can trust the law to become void. Now, there would be no purpose for Jesus to say that if he's then not going to say, and therefore I'm going to point to this passage in this verse and apply it to your life. But because he does that, we can say, oh, he's, he's talking about the Old Testament here. He's talking about the book of Moses. He's saying that Moses' words have been preserved into the first century, and they should be considered jot and tittle, the words of God. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Actually, we should have more reason for confidence because Christ Jesus has ascended from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we have been given the Holy Spirit. There are so many more reasons to believe in the inspiration of Scripture today than there were in the first century. So, in light of God's law, not everything is a matter of discernment. Some things are objectively sinful and wrong to do. There is no excuse for sexual immorality, and it is always a foolish activity. But also, the law of God is not just used to tell us what not to do. It also is used to encourage us not to do those things. The law is used to help direct us and guide us, because when God says this is sinful and wrong, He's encouraging us not to do that and telling us how to rightly live. This is one way that the law can be used. It's not just a tool of condemnation. It's also a tool that instructs us on how we ought to walk as believers. And also the law doesn't just instruct believers. Actually, the law informs how you can live in a society and function. The part of our constitution that says uh, murderers should be punished uh, is, is actually cited to the Bible. The part of the Constitution that says uh, people who commit acts of rape should be punished for the wickedness that they have committed. Well, that's actually sourced straight from Scripture. Because God says every human being bears his image. Therefore, human beings ought to be respected and preserved and protected from all manner of wickedness which could be committed against them. 
And it doesn't matter if people say, well, I don't believe the Bible. God's morality, God's law, is good and just for a society to embrace. Imagine trying to not enforce a law like uh, murder on someone because they say, well, I think I should be able to murder. Well, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what you can and cannot do, and this society, you can't do that. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. it. It instructs you not to behave wickedly. So the law of God can be used rightly in a just society to say, this is what we ought to do, this is what we ought not to do. This is what we ought to tolerate, this is what we ought not to tolerate. Now, there's many ways in which God's law can and should be uh, interpreted and considered in applying it to a modern context. But know this, God's law, his teaching, is good moral <coughs> guidance and instruction for his people. It is not null and void. Even if you don't like it. And this, I think, is the most important part when it comes to the law of God and his word and his teaching. Sometimes when God's word says something, we say, well, my judgment says that would actually be wrong. And then we are faced with a choice. Do we think God is more wise or we are more wise? When we read, uh, let's say you're talking to a friend and you and your friend are discussing what would be the wisest course of action to, let's say, invest your finances. You can evaluate opinions. You can consider what is or is not better to do. And at the end of the day, you can make a shrewd decision on where would your money best be spent. But when God's law says you cannot do this thing, you don't have to sit down and weigh the option. Uh, God's law has told you what to do. And, it, and at that point, you can say either I'm going to put my wisdom up against God's wisdom or regardless of how I feel about it, I'm going to submit to God's wisdom because he is the all-wise God. As Christians, we are called to live shrewdly in light of God's law. Now here, we can pull a couple of things out of the text and we can, we can say, well, what other examples of shrewd living exist in the world which would tell us how we as Christians could live in this world? I'll put a couple of examples before you, a couple of illustrations that I think will make a sufficient point. There are people in this world who will embark on dietary restriction and various kinds of extreme diets so that they can achieve a certain weight goal or a certain physique or a certain aesthetic. In that effort, they will eat strictly. They will discipline themselves to plan out all their meals. They will resist the urge to go and eat things which fall outside of the range of their dietary choices. And they will do so actually usually to much success. Uh, they will uh, sometimes do that for right or wrong reasons. But sometimes it surprises me that people who pursue diets for vain purposes of aesthetic have more self-control than Christians who struggle with lust. Because Christians who know that God's law says this is wrong do not enact the same amount of shrewdness that someone embarking on a foolish diet would embark on. They don't plan ahead. They don't resist their own desires and urges. Actually, someone who's dieting sometimes shows remarkably more self-control than a Christian. And Christian, you should act more shrewdly. You should be more disciplined because you do not want to be put to shame by the wisdom of the world. The world sometimes acts wisely in its own dealings more than Christians do. Additionally, I'll now speak to women. There are women in the world who have said they will not marry a man or entertain dating a man unless he makes a certain level of income or a certain financial stability 
or has a certain amount of respectability in his culture or friend group, they won't even consider associating themselves with his name unless he reaches these certain standards. And I know Christian women who do not exercise any shrewdness at all when it comes to who they would engage in a relationship with or choose to marry. Now, I'm not saying you should have the same motivations or standards. All I'm saying is sometimes the selectiveness of secular women in the world puts to shame the selectiveness that Christian women should have regarding who they ought to marry and who they ought to submit their lives to and who they ought to uh, join with for the rest of their life. Sometimes it is those who seek only financial gain from marriage who exact much more shrewdness than it is Christian women. So learn from their example, not in every aspect, but in this lane, be selective in who you choose to date and who you choose to welcome into your life and who you choose to marry. Because a woman who knows that she should not marry a poor man because he will remain poor with his poor habits, a, a Christian woman should be able to make the same kind of deduction. I should not marry a fool who does not study God's word because these habits will persist. I, will, I should not marry someone who has no job or no responsibilities because they're an irresponsible person and their irresponsibility will persist. Be more selective in terms of who you date and who you find yourself entertaining for marriage. And lastly, I'll speak now to the men. There are many entrepreneurs and people in this world who will invest in relationships. They will invest their time. They will invest their finances. They will invest their learning efforts and energy so that they can be successful in their careers. They will devote free time to the study of their craft. They will devote their relational and social capital so that they can advance in their careers. They will invest much time, much energy, and much effort, possibly to get an entrepreneurial business off the ground. And I know Christian men who will not take on that level of responsibility uh, simply because they are undisciplined. And they see no point in investing their life into those things. Uh, just because God has said it is a good thing to read his word does not mean you should have no job, no responsibilities, and sit in your home all day reading the Bible. As a Christian man, you are called to live as a steward of all of the things which God has given you. And that does not put off the parts of the world which are, we would consider, secular. If that requires you learn how to uh, program a computer so you can get a job and provide for a wife one day, go and do that thing. Because God has called you to responsibility as a Christian man. If that requires you to learn another language so that you can go overseas and serve in the foreign mission field, Go and do that thing to dedicate yourself three, four, five years to becoming fluent so you can preach the gospel to a people who has not heard it. There's a missionary pamphlet in the 1900s where a Christian theologian wrote his lament over the fact that if you could point a secular person to a business opportunity in a non-English speaking country, watch how quickly they'll all learn that language to go overseas and deal business there. But if you tell a Christian there's a country that needs the gospel, Christians won't go, they won't learn languages, and oh, how he lamented that reality. As a Christian man, you are called to responsibility in every domain and stewardship of your life. There is no secular and sacred. There is all of God, which calls all of your life into submission and all of your life into stewardship. And you are called to, do, you are responsible and you will answer for how you use your whole life. Not as a matter of justification, 
as a matter of wisdom, as a matter of stewardship. Because God is a wise, stewarding God. And if he has given you time and opportunity, you are to take those, to seize them, to invest them well, because of eternity, because of what he has revealed to us in his word, and because of the responsibilities which he has put on you. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we lift up your name because your name is the only name which is to be worshipped and served. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are the all-wise God. We recognize that we in so many ways fall so short of your wisdom, Father. We ask for grace from your Spirit that you would put us and into our minds and into our hearts the desire to run after these things, a desire for obedience, a vision for what it would look like for us to walk after everything you've made us responsible for well. Oh Lord, would we be Christians who are wise? Would we be Christians who are not foolish, squandering opportunities and relationships, but would we be wise in every aspect of our lives? We know that this is your teaching from your son, and we recognize that we are often disobedient to it. We pray for forgiveness, even as we recognize our own misgivings in this. And we ask for your heart, obedience, and your wisdom, that we would be people who are marked by love for your word, obedience to your word, and living for all of you for all of our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.